turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4. We're working our way through Genesis right now. Uh, and uh, it, we, we find here in these opening chapters not just details, not just facts, uh, not just a story to satisfy our curiosity about where the world came from, uh, but, but actual historical narrative here that is focused intently on telling us how the world came to be and why it is the way it is. And so often we describe the, the content of the entire Bible as telling a story of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And in Genesis 1 and 2, we've uh, looked at the, the creation account. In Genesis 3, we read about the fall and the beginning of redemption. And in chapter 4, we're going to, to begin to see this redemption as it unfolds and plays out. Uh, Everything about chapter 4 this morning, uh, the first 16 verses is where we're going to be, is really hanging from Genesis 3.15. Uh, it's important that we understand this isn't just the story of a family. This isn't just relating to us, and so then this happened, and then that happened. But it's actually here in chapter 4 with the story of Cain and Abel. It's beginning to show how what God has said in Genesis 3.15 is unfolding in the world. And though it's a single incident and a true story, nonetheless, it is, it's also true generally, the pattern that we see here in these verses this morning. It, it has not only happened here with Cain and Abel, but continues to happen, continues to be the shape of things, what's happening, why it's happening, how it's happening in the history of the world as we await the second coming of Christ and the end of all of this, which is consummation. And so I want to take a real quick look at Genesis 3.15. Uh, I'm going to pray. We'll look at 3.15. Then we're going to read our verses from chapter 4 and begin this morning. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word. We know that we are fallen. We know that even in Christ, we are not yet made perfect so that as we come to your word, sometimes it's difficult to understand things. But we pray that this morning, we would not only come to a right understanding of your word, but that that understanding would then go from our heads into our hearts, that it would transform us, that we would be encouraged where we need to be encouraged, that we would be admonished where we need to be admonished, that, Father, if there are those who are dead in their trespasses and sins within hearing of the reading and preaching of this word this morning, that unlike Cain, they would repent of their sin, that they would turn and worship and serve you and be saved. We pray that you would do this by the power of your word and spirit. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Look at Genesis 3.15. Remember, this is the curse. God is pronouncing the curse. He begins with the serpent, and it's to the serpent that he says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, now Adam and Eve, or Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the, first fruit, or the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, 
Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The key to understanding what's going on with Cain and Abel here is found again in Genesis 3.15. You see, what, what existed in the garden before the fall is that God and Adam, Adam and Eve, they had perfect fellowship with one another. And that fellowship with God was the source of their life. And that fellowship was broken by their rebellion. So that no longer did they have that fellowship. God drove them out, we saw last week, from the garden. That place that represented where God was dwelling together with Adam and Eve. But what we find as we open up Genesis chapter 4 is that God is already at work. He promised in the curse that we just read that he was going to fix this. You see, they had fellowship with God. And when the serpent came along and, and convinced Eve and eventually Adam, to eat the fruit that they were not permitted to eat, to violate God's word, to, to break his law, that fellowship with God was broken, but a new fellowship was established, a fellowship with the serpent. This is what God is doing in 315 when he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. God is saying, that fellowship you've established, I'm going to break that fellowship and I'm going to restore the fellowship between us. That's an important key. And that fellowship was, was represented by the shedding of blood. Remember at the end of chapter 3, Adam and Eve had covered themselves with plants. They recognized that they were naked. They had taken leaves and covered themselves. But God says that's not good enough. That can't cover your guilt, your shame. And so an animal, not the serpent, a completely innocent animal that had nothing to do with the fall in the garden is killed. And its skin used to provide a covering for them. And Adam and Eve are taught in this act that what is required in order to restore fellowship between God and man is the blood of an innocent shed for them. And that's what's happening as we open up chapter 4. We find that Adam and Eve have given birth to Cain and Abel, and so much can be said about the first verse, but we're going to push past that this morning. They have children, and these two boys grow up. One of them grows up to raise uh, sheep, livestock. The other grows up farming, and they come to make an offering to God. It can be a little confusing to us why it is that God won't accept Cain's offering. He's come to the one true God. 
He's given a gift that's the, the result of the work of his hands. Why does God not accept Cain's offering? And the answer is that there is no blood in that offering. Abel brings an offering of blood. Cain should have perhaps traded with his brother, given him the fruit of the ground in order to gain a living animal that he could offer as a sacrifice, but he won't do this. And because of this, God won't accept his offering. What is necessary for Cain to be in right fellowship with God is for Cain obediently to engage in that act of worship that shows, that represents, that puts on display what it is that is required to restore fellowship. He will not do that. This morning, then, I want to consider obedience and its outcome. Obedience and its outcome. Rebellion and its consequences. Rebellion and its consequences. And finally, the patience of God towards sinners. The patience of God towards sinners. So take a look at the text again. Notice that, that Abel's sacrifice is accepted. What, a, what that tells us is that Abel, Abel's sacrifice was according to God's word. Now, as we continue to read through the Old Testament, and especially when the law of Moses is given, uh, and God gives very clear instructions on how he is to be worshipped, and there are instances where God's people worship him contrary to his instructions. And the consequences are dire. What we see here in Abel is one who is worshiping God according to his instruction. We know it's according to his instruction because God accepts his offering. He had regard, verse 4, for Abel and his offering. Abel is doing what God has revealed is the right thing to do. And we're going to see when we get to Cain's part of this story that even though God drove Adam and Eve out of the garden and that being driven out of the garden was representative of a loss of fellowship with God, God is at work already restoring that fellowship. And this is how he's doing it, by giving instructions for worship and those who are faithful engaging in that worship of God according to those instructions. Abel is in right relationship with God. Cain is as well, apparently, as the chapter opens, because the consequence of his disobedience is going to be that he's driven out of the presence of God. Well, how could he have been in the presence of God? I thought that's what Adam and Eve lost. It was what they lost, but God has been restoring it. And those who come and worship him rightly are, are in that fellowship with God, not perfectly, Right? A day is still future to them and to us when God will perfectly restore our fellowship with him, when we will see Christ face to face and be in fellowship with him forever. Abel does what God has commanded to be done. He does it by faith, trusting that God will keep his promises, that the, the effects of the curse that Abel is experiencing even now in this text that the effects of the curse are going to one day be lifted. Abel knows the promises made to Adam and Eve. That someone born in the line of Eve would one day deliver them from all of this. He believes this. And this is why he trusts God. In contrast to his parents, notice. They didn't trust God. And the fall happened. And, and that fall that happens in Genesis 3, the bad news for us is that Adam was our representative in that fall. 
that what he did and the consequences of it fall on us as well because we are descended from him and he was our representative. Obedience, though, has its consequences. It has its, its outcomes. We see in verse 8, Cain spoke to Abel, his brother. It suggests uh, premeditation on Cain's part. He invites Abel out into the field, and when they get there, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. It's, uh, it's vital that we understand as Christians in the world that obedience to God, right worship of God, trusting in Jesus Christ, in Him alone, and Him alone for salvation, repenting of our sin, acknowledging that there is a right and a wrong that is objective and eternal and that is rooted in the very character of God Himself and that we are called to pursue that way of living. When we do that faithfully in the world, it will result in persecution. Too often, the, the, the brand of Christianity that we have uh, seen and heard here in America is a brand of Christianity that suggests that if you will figure out what God wants done and do it, it will result in blessing, material blessing in this life, and all will be well. It's completely the opposite of the testimony of Scripture. This is only the first instance, but we're going to see over and over and over again throughout all of Scripture, and it has continued in history since the canon was closed. The people of God are hated by the world. Listen to what Christ says in Matthew. It's, it's a little bit longer reading here, but listen carefully. I'm in Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to start in verse 24 if you want to turn there and follow along. Matthew 10, 24. What Jesus is saying that I'm about to read has been the case since Cain and Abel. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Listen to the instruction. All right, Jesus has just said, you're going to be hated you're going to be mistreated. You're going to be maligned and called terrible things. So have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather... Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. There's Abel. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who is in heaven. There's Cain. The world hates the people of God. But listen, brothers and sisters, they hate us because they hate Christ. It's Christ that they hate. It is the image of God being restored that they hate. It is the, the authority of God in the world to tell them what is right and wrong, good and bad, true and false, that they hate. And because they hate Christ, they hate those of us who love Christ. 
Here's the lesson I want us to take from this first point this morning. The consequences, the outcomes of our obedience will not always, and in fact in history, have rarely been happy consequences for the people of God. And yet, who we are and what we are called to does not change. We cannot evaluate the goodness of God, the truth of His Word, the necessity of doing what He has told us to do by the outcomes that result. We cannot say to God, God, why are we being persecuted? I don't understand. I'm doing everything that your word tells me to do. And where I fail, I repent. I don't know what else to do in order to have a peaceful life. Why won't they leave me alone? I don't understand. God has told us over and over in his word. It's a truism that the more faithful we are, the more persecuted we will be. There's not a great deal of persecution in the United States of America. And for the longest time, I think I, I attributed that more to the blessing of God. But the older I get and the more I see, I'm increasingly convinced that we are not persecuted in this country because we are not faithful. We will not say to the world, this is who God is. This is, who God, this is what God requires this is who we are before a holy and just God, and this is what he will do if you will not take refuge in his son. We're not persecuted because most of the people who know us barely know that we're even Christians. Why would they persecute us? God certainly does bless his people at times in history with great periods of peace. In those periods of peace, he's blessing us so that we can grow stronger, so that we can be a stronger testimony in the world. And I wonder if we are not squandering that blessing as Christians in America today. Perhaps we're not persecuted because we're not obedient. We're not doing what we're told, living as we should. And so, brothers and sisters, let's continue to pursue what God has told us is right Second, this morning, rebellion and its consequences. Look, Cain knew what he was supposed to do. Now, that's not, it's barely a conjecture in the text. It's almost explicit. Look at what God says to Cain. In verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well... Will you not be accepted? Cain knows what it is to do well. Cain knows what is required of him. And not only has he refused to do it, but even having been confronted by God himself, he still will not do it. If you do well, will you not be accepted? Who doesn't anticipate at this point in the narrative Cain turning to his brother Abel and saying, can we make a trade? Can I get an animal? I need to worship God according to his word. But God himself speaking to Cain does not turn Cain's heart. If you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And not only does he get this generous invitation, Cain, you know what to do. Just, just do what you're supposed to do. You'll be accepted. But he gives him a warning as well. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain, you stand on the edge of a knife here. Cain, you know what to do. If you, if you will just do what you've been told to do, you'll be accepted. But if you won't do it, Cain, there's a lion at the door. There's a lion staring intently at you, and its desire is to devour you. But you've got to rule over it. You must put it to death. Do what is right. Cain persists in his rebellion, and Cain is going to double down on that rebellion out of hatred for his brother, jealousy, envy that his brother is regarded, his sacrifice is well regarded by God, but his own sacrifice is not regarded. It is not accepted by God. Rather than do the right thing, he lashes out in hatred towards his brother who is accepted and kills him. Cain refused to acknowledge that blood was required for atonement. Instead of the blood that was required of the innocent animal, he takes the blood of his brother, and that blood is spilled into the ground. What, what offering does he bring? What's happening here with Cain? Cain brings an offering of his own hands, and he says to God, you'll accept this. I bring nothing else. And God says, that's not what you were told to bring. And Cain says, it's what you get. Be happy with it. Cain brings an offering of the work of his hands. It's an offering that could never satisfy. Because, And this is, this is good news for us. Listen, God doesn't require of us the work of our hands for salvation. Uh, this is good news. Because none of us could possibly ever accomplish by our own works what is required for salvation. Isn't it absurd that even those of us who know Christ, all of us in our worst moments, we, we find ourselves confused about why God won't accept our good works. Troubled because we're convinced our good works aren't enough. No, they're not. They're not. But the good news of the gospel is you don't need to be troubled by that. The world keeps insisting, no, 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 my good works will be enough. If you stand before God at the judgment and he were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? The number one answer given in America today is I did my best. And God is loving. He knows I did my best. He'll accept my best. He's merciful. But God has been telling us for 4,000 years, or as far back as you have to go to get to the, the story of Cain and Abel, your best will never be good enough. The works of your hands are not what I require. I require the blood of an innocent on your behalf. Now, that's bad news for the innocent. But it's the gospel for us. 
rebellion and its consequences. Cain is going to suffer terrible consequences here, but not as terrible as they ought to be. Cain is going to refuse. And so he is once again, in the midst of God restoring fellowship, Cain is going to be driven out of that fellowship. Look at verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain not only doesn't repent the first time God comes to him, he doubles down and kills his brother. God ought to take Cain's life, but in patience he does not, and Cain complains. It's worse than I can bear. It's too much. It's not just, God. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. Oh, that's true. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. The consequences of sin are terrible. Rebellion will never restore the fellowship that is ours in Christ Jesus, the fellowship that was lost in the garden. Cain's works were not what God required. And our good works will not be accepted by God as an atonement for sin. Cain refused to, uh, to repent. All of us are guilty of this at times, of course. You know, we sin, but Cain, when confronted by his sin, does not repent. He reveals himself then to be the offspring of the serpent. You see, this is what's happening. Abel is the beginning or would have been the beginning. He has the potential to be the beginning of the offspring of Eve in Genesis 3.15 that God is restoring to himself. Cain has the same opportunity, but refuses it. And in so doing, demonstrates himself to be the offspring of the serpent. We see this next week as we pick up Cain's uh, genealogy, and we find that that Cain's not only in rebellion against God, but he either doesn't tell his children about the provision God has made for salvation, or generation after generation in his line continually follow his example and reject that benefit, that provision. As a result, we see wickedness increase. Cain is driven out from God's presence. And this is what's in store for all those who will not trust in Christ as their atoning sacrifice, an eternity of separation from God. Paul says in Romans 6.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us were born in rebellion against God, and the consequences of that rebellion are guilt and the curse of God and death. But God has made a way for us and patiently calls us back to himself. The only way back is faith in Jesus Christ and repentance from sin. How? How has he made his, uh, a way back? The author of Hebrews says that we who believe have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You see, Abel's blood cries out from the ground. God says to Cain, I, I hear the voice of your brother's blood crying out to me. It's crying out in judgment against Cain. The author of Hebrews says the blood of another now cries out, and it cries out a better word than the blood of Abel, because rather than crying out to us justice and judgment, it cries out to us salvation and refuge and 
the salvation that is ours in Christ. All this brings us to our last point this morning, God's patience with sinners. Notice God's patience and his instruction to Cain. Notice how he doesn't kill Cain immediately, continues to withhold the justice that Cain deserves. Notice Cain's refusal to repent, and yet God persists in his patience. Look at how God interacts with Cain. Cain doesn't, uh, God doesn't accept his offering because it's not an acceptable offering. But, but in, in gentleness, God comes to him. Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? There's an opportunity here for repentance. And not only an opportunity to repent, but an encouragement to do so. God says to Cain, come on, Cain, you, you know what to do here. If you do what you've been told, will you not be accepted? There is a warning that is loving the, the, the motivation in warning him about sin and its desire for him is that he would turn. Listen, we as Christians, when we tell the world that we are under the wrath of God and deserving judgment and apart from Christ will spend an eternity in hell, it ought never to be delivered as though we delight in it. It ought to never be delivered as though we were indifferent about it. It is a warning given, motivated by love for a lost and dying world. God is incredibly patient with Cain. Instead of putting him to death, he gives him this warning. Even after murdering his brother, he does not give him what we know from his own word to be justice, taking Cain's life, but nonetheless... Sending Cain out. Cain's problem, by the way, wasn't murder. That, that comes in towards the end. Cain's issue was refusing to trust in the work of another. This is Cain's problem. Will we trust in the work of another? A great judgment is coming. All of us are dying. It doesn't matter how slowly, how far away that death may be. And we will stand before our maker on the day of judgments. Will you stand there and plead the work of your hands? Or will you stand there and plead the work of another? Jesus Christ, who has performed the work that is required for you. God is patient, but that day is coming, and it may be suddenly. Listen to Peter. This is uh, from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Again, follow the logic here. Listen to what Peter has to say. He says, this is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. 
but by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Judgment is coming, but God is patient. Listen, there are only two kinds of people in the world. The offspring of Eve who belong to Christ and are trusting in Christ and Him alone for their salvation. And because of this, because of who they are, they are also living lives of obedience, not perfectly, but always pursuing that perfection and confessing their sins, repenting when they fail, asking forgiveness from God who grants it freely. The other kind of people in the world are the offspring of the serpent. Now, we're not making this up. Not only in Genesis 3.15 does he say your offspring to the serpent. So there's some, some kind of offspring from the serpent. It's not baby snakes. It's, it's people born in the line of Eve who refuse to obey God. How do I know this? Because when we get to Matthew and the gospel accounts, both John the Baptist and Jesus at separate occasions say to the Pharisees, you brood of vipers. Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? We don't use that kind of language much anymore. It's, uh, it's not in the How to Win Friends and Influence People book. A brood, a viper, a vipers. That brood is all the, the brothers and sisters. It's the children. It's the offspring. In fact, even in the New Testament, the actual translation of the word that's translated brood is offspring. It means the same thing. John the Baptist and Jesus say, you offspring of a serpent. This is the other kind of people in the world, the offspring of the serpent, living lives of disobedience, rebelling against God, living however they want, even though they know it is contrary to God's law. And with these, God is patient. Listen to Peter again. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Now, what will we do with the patience of God? Will we squander it? Will we despise it? Or will we stop, listen carefully, and hear the voice of our patient God asking us, Sinner, why are you angry? And why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. What is it to do well? It's to trust in Christ and repent of your sins. This is what God requires of us. And if we will do it, we will be accepted. Amen? Let's pray.